You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello, I'm Kim Bidolf and I'm back with the Prehistories Podcast on the Archaeology Podcast Network. I'm really glad to be back. It's been over a year since I last recorded for this podcast and I must apologize for that hiatus. On this podcast, we're fascinated by stories. Storytelling is obviously a very fascinating thing for everybody around the world. There's a huge publishing industry, there's a huge film industry, and it's all about storytelling. What I've always been most keen on, even as a little girl, were stories about the past. As archaeologists, we find out about and say things about the past, but we rarely tell a story. Storytelling is an art in itself. It takes a lot of practice to hone storytelling skills. And I think that during my time on the podcast, I've found that the best stories about the past are those told by professional storytellers rather than professional archaeologists. Sorry about that. Sometimes the facts are wrong in these stories by storytellers, but the story is good. And when the story is good, it has traction in the public consciousness. Quite often, though, the storytellers have gone to great lengths to get the details right. Take Margaret Elphinstone's The Gathering Night, where she wrote, with input from an expert on the Scottish Mesolithic, Caroline Wickham-Jones. I've been lucky enough to have Caroline on the podcast along with Spencer Carter, to talk to me about that book. Um, and you will find it in my back catalogue. Jean M. All's Clan of the Cave Bear series is also full of vast amounts of research on the um, late Upper Paleolithic. Some of the aspects of the book are clearly influenced by modern sensibilities, though. But isn't that the case for archaeological theories as well? The very first story I reviewed on this podcast was Wolf Brother, a children's book by Michelle Paver. This book was set in Mesolithic Scandinavia and followed the adventures of a boy named Torak and his wolf and his friend Wren. Great and evil magic was abroad in the forest and eventually, over six books, the friends were able to defeat it. My guests on that episode were Matthew Ritchie of Forestry and Land Scotland, Donald Henson of the University of York and James Dilley of Ancient Craft. Here's a clip from that episode. On this episode, we're discussing Wolf Brother by Michelle Paver that was actually published over 10 years ago now. It was the first in a series of books called The Chronicles of Ancient Darkness um, and is set in the Mesolithic of Scotland. What Wolf Brother bring, brings to the table is is uh, a real insight into the past, but one that, that you immediately pick up on and then uh, off with the adventure, off with the social side of life uh, and living in the Mesolithic. I'm going to read um, uh, a little bit about when Torak, uh, we've talked about this before, finally comes to a camp and sees lots of people all at once. And imagine up until this point, and he's about 12, he's only been with his father, and unfortunately his father dies in the first on the first page, I think, by uh, killed by a bear. And he's wandering alone and finds finds these people. And they are the, the Raven clan. I'll just read this this short extract. The trees opened into a clearing. Torak smelt pine smoke and fresh blood. He saw four big reindeer hide shelters, unlike any he'd ever seen, 
and a bewildering number of people. On the riverbank, two men... The problem is that um, it's a lack of evidence. There, there have been arguments that we're getting evidence of textiles, and they are fragmentary, to say the, the least, that go back to the Upper Paleolithic. Yeah. Um, but they are very fragmentary. The problem that I see yeah, is that... I think that, that we do have to be quite... Yeah, quite nuanced, as you say, about how we talk about the Mesolithic as not not some kind of magical time where people never um, did anything wrong. <laughs> and I think there's an interesting connection there, isn't there, between the book you mentioned earlier, The Gathering Night by Margaret Elphinstone, mm. which again set in the Mesolithic. And Margaret worked very closely on that with Caroline Wickham-Jones, mm. the archaeologist. Oh, right, yes. Caroline herself then published a book called Fear of Farming, which was really an intensive look at what that hunter-gathering lifestyle might have been like. In short, we loved the series. Matt sent the link to Michelle's agent and Michelle sent back a lovely thank you letter, which was really nice to get. And then we thought that was that. But a few weeks ago, I had an email from Annabelle Wright telling me Michelle had written a new book in the series after 10 years. Imagine my excitement. The new book is called Viper's Daughter and is set three summers after the end of Ghost Hunter, which was the last in the series, or so we thought. I'm very pleased to say that I have the author, Michelle Paver, herself here on the podcast with me. Hi, Michelle. Hello, Kim. It's great to be back. It's lovely to speak to you. It's really nice to that you can come personally on the podcast. I'm just so pleased. Of course, luckily for me, we have met before at the Chiltern Open Air Museum. My One of my colleagues there, Cathy Silman, has created a Wolf Brother themed set of sessions for schools so that they can use the book and come to the museum and experience what life might be like in the woodland for someone living in the time of Torak and Wren and Wolf in the Mesolithic. Do you remember that day? I, how can I forget it? I mean, I remember there was an amazing mage who would tell them stories around the fire. And there was, I think it was called Bambi, that incredible sort of fabric <laughs> deer that was hung up by his back hooves. And then I think it was a zip fastening. You zipped open his his belly and, or her belly and out came guts. Beautiful. I think yes. they sausages. They were just wonderful. And the children really seemed to love you know, whole body usage, even if they're vegetarians, they, they, they love the fact that yes. you use all the bits. And that was such a great way of, of explaining it. Do you still use it? Oh, yes. Bambi is still in use. Um, <laughs> he's needed a little bit of TLC over the years as he I keeps on getting ripped open and then his guts put back in. Yeah. All, one of our volunteers knitted all of the insides. That's right. They were knitted. Yes. Yes. And it, I just love showing the kids how long the small intestine is. Mm. Mm. And getting them to pull it out little bit by little bit and go yes. way way away in the um in the woodland. Yeah, it's um <laughs> it's a great session. It was um, a good day. It was. I know that the visiting school that we had there, the children there really loved the talk you gave them as well. Oh, I'm so glad that that's excellent. I mean, it was great fun showing them all the artifacts. You know, the the birch bark cup and the and the reindeer hide mittens and and things like that. They 
I think they like to be able to touch things that were, you know, authentically made. I know. Yes. Have these been gifts to you from various communities that you've gone to visit? Often I buy them because mm-hmm. they make them, you know, the, the reindeer hide mittens I got from when I was up in Churchill on the on the, the Hudson Bay in Can- Arctic Canada. Um, those were, were made, I think those, yes, those were Inuit made, the, the birch bark cup that was made by the Dene people. Again, one of the Arctic um, Canadian cultures. So yes, I just pick them up where I can find them. Sometimes you know, I, I get given them, but mostly I'll, I'll just buy them, you know, a little remote outpost or something. I don't suppose there's much of a market for, for necklaces made of bear claws and teeth, but, you know. <laughs> oh, I'd love one of those. Yeah, <laughs> but you're, you've, you go on such amazing adventures yourself. Well, it's part of the fun. I mean, I, I never really anticipated that when I, I started writing Wolf Brother. It was just, I remember thinking, well, I, you know, I'm going to, I want to create an authentic Mesolithic world. So, let's go to the forest. And that was just the thought, you know, going up to Finland for the first trip. And I did it on horseback because it's a good way of seeing the country and then, you know, camping. But, uh, and it kind of went on from there because, you know, these, these aren't, you know, I have to be, be clear. I mean, I'm not trying to teach anybody anything. I'm just trying to entertain and, and create a, an exciting adventure, but I want to mm. make it an authentic one. And so it really helps me write the books if I can do what my characters will do and, and sort of go where they go. And then it gives me ideas for the stories as well. You do seem to take that to quite amazing ends, you know, <laughs> having to go into an ice cave and things like that for this book. Yeah. Viper's Daughter was quite a, an interesting one to, to research because I, I knew I wanted to get, I mean, basically, you know, in the story, Ren, it's Ren leaves and Torak and Wolf have to find her. And so they head north mm. to the edge of the world. And so I wanted to head north. And so I took an icebreaker through the Bering Straits to uh, Wrangell Island, last home yeah. of the woolly mammoths. And, oh, and so, yes. I went to talk about that. And, and yes, we will, I'm sure. And then also to Alaska. And yes, I knew I needed an ice cave. I wanted an ice cave for, for towards the end of the book. So I managed to find a guide to take me under the Mendenhall Glacier. There is a huge ice cave there. It's quite quite tricky to get into because bits keep falling off. So this young man, he was only about 24, and he would, he said he told me, just wait, and then I'll signal when you can go in. And he had to sort of dart inside. But it was extraordinary wow. once I got in. I mean, this really otherworldly blue light, even the air seemed to be sort of misty and blue because it was full of water vapour. Very, very strange with this vast weight of glacier on top of you. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. I, I have to point out that in a first for prehistories, my daughter, Catherine, who is 10 years old, mm. um, is also on waiting in the wings on this podcast because she loves the Wolf Brother books so much and she's desperate to talk to Michelle. Now, she has written one question for me, which I thought it would be a good time for her to ask now, if that's all right. Perfect. So yeah. can you ask that question? Aren't you scared with wolves and bears? Well, Catherine, I was not scared ever with the wolves. I met the wolves at the UK Wolf Conservation Trust and they're sort of, they're not tame because you can't tame a wolf, but they're not completely unused to people. So as long as you approach them using wolf good manners, you tend to be all right. So I knew a little, I don't know as much wolf talk as Torak, but I knew to talk softly and look not straight into their eyes because that's a bit threatening for a wolf and not to sort of try to paw them and, and stroke them all over. And then that meant that I got got on very well with them. And so I wasn't scared. I was just so amazed because they're, they're quite different from dogs. 
A wolf is is a little bit more distant than a dog. You know, a dog will come up, and I love dogs, but sort of lick you all over and everything and wag their tail if they like you. But a wolf will come and, you know, if if they know you, as, as I knew them, they would sort of come up and touch noses and then wander off. You know, so, so they're a little bit more distant, but very charismatic. Now, the bear, you asked about a bear. Yeah, that's a different matter. I don't think I get on very well with bears. Um, the first mm. time I encountered a bear actually helped inspire the story. This was long before I wrote Wolf Brother and I met just by accident. I was hiking in in the States in the forest and I, I encountered a mother black bear with two cubs and I didn't see them at first. So I got a bit too close to the cubs and of course I backed off, but the mother bear didn't like it. Mm. Yeah. She came, she got a bit annoyed with me and sort of champed her jaws, oh, um, which is a sort of threat and yeah. uh, came towards me. So that was very frightening. And I managed to calm her down and get away. Um, but that stayed with me. And so that helped inspire the demon bear in Wolf Brother. So yes, <laughs> I am very scared of bears. I'm very careful with bears, particularly polar bears. Um, I saw a lot of polar bears in the research for Viper's Daughter. And I'm very careful about them because they regard us as prey. So yes. you have to be really careful with polar bears. Oh, amazing. <laughs> Great question. Um, good question. Um, she's writing a few more down, so maybe we'll come in another Fine. time. So it's been 10 years since uh, the last Wolf Brother series or Chronicles of Ancient Darkness series mm. book uh, was out, Ghost Hunters. But you haven't just been kind of resting on your laurels in those 10 years, have you? You've been doing some other writing as well. I have, yes. Now I wrote after Ghost Hunter, I wrote Dark Matter my first ghost story for adults, which was taking me back to the Arctic. I couldn't, couldn't lose the Arctic. Um, mm -hmm. And I had, I mean, it was a very difficult book to write, but it was, a, it was enormous fun. And then I wrote the Bronze Age series, Gods and Warriors, uh, five yeah. books set in what, about sort of three and a half thousand years ago. Yes. Which took me, that was a sort of another period I've always loved, actually. Um, and so I had an Achaean hero and a Minoan heroine, which was terrific fun. And then I wrote uh, Thin Air, another ghost story set in the Himalayas, and latterly a Gothic story, Wakenhurst, which was set in, in Suffolk. So not, not because I was mm. tired of traveling, but, uh, you know, the story just dictated that it take place in, in the Fens. <laughs> Uh, those sound uh, we have to get hold of those Catherine I think you'd love the Bronze Age ones particularly I'm trying uh, obviously to make her an archaeologist but I think <laughs> Catherine's more interested in being a writer um, oh. actually having read all these amazing stories you're very good at the sinister and the threatening aren't you there's there's quite a lot of that in the in the Wolf Brother books as well and I particularly found that the magic in the books is always just on the edge of being able to be explained by natural events. But obviously the, the, the main characters very much believe in magic mm. and they see omens in the natural world around them. Where did you get this idea from or, is, or was that something that you had observed anywhere or, or anything like that? Well, I think it arose naturally because right from the start with Wolf Brother, I wanted to create an as far as I could, an authentic Mesolithic world. And mm. so I, I thought, well, I can't interview a Stone Age person, but mm. I can talk to and read about people, peoples who still live in traditional ways, you know, the Inuit, the Sami, the, the First Nations of the Pacific Northwest, the Haida, the Klinkit, those sort of people, the Ainu in Japan. 
So I did a lot of work on that reading and and then you know visiting the Inuit. And what really came through to me very very strongly was well p- partly you know the hunter gatherers. So they have this tremendous connection with the natural world because they depend mm. on it for survival. But very much a feeling that there is no distinction between the supernatural and the natural, and there's a there's a very much in all the different cultures a strong awareness that, you know, people can talk to animals. Maybe and animals become people. There's a sort of transformational thing going on all the time. Omens mm. they're always on the lookout for. You know, interpreting their world. Some of that is extremely good biological observation. You know, tracking yes. and noticing when birds migrate and, and the behavior of animals and plants, but also the supernatural comes in as well. You know, if an animal does something unusual, it's an omen. Uh, and I love that idea, mm. you know, because sometimes mm. you do see an animal doing something a bit odd. Or you see different behaviors. And then if you're a hunter-gatherer, you will think that might be an omen. And it could well be if they're doing something odd, there might be some reason for it. Well, you see, that's that's what I love because, uh, mm. you know, for example, we know f- from, from biological studies that if there's a, a volcanic eruption is imminent, you get certain odd behaviours. You know, toads start leaving leaving the, the pond or, or, you know, snakes start, you know, moving around and, and different behaviours. And so, mm. um, yeah, and, and hunter-gatherers tend to be much more observant of the natural world than we are. You know, an, an Inuit person might take an hour to sweep um, his surrounding tundra with binoculars, whereas a Westerner like me would take about five minutes and say, well, there's nothing there. You know, but yes. an Inuit person will take ages because they're seeing all sorts of things. And so yeah. th- that's where I got that idea from. It's something I have to keep reminding myself to do. And also the idea of sort of personifying the natural world. I mean, to, to a Sami person, they tend to have the view, I think, that you know, everything in the world can think, mm. but not everything can talk. Everything can see and hear and think, but not everything can talk, which is quite a strange idea. You know, you know, next time you sit down and have a picnic by a large clump of boulders, if you're Sami, you believe that they're watching you, you know? Mm. Um, mm. So, so the whole world is animism, really, you know? Absolutely, yes. And that's, that's very important. I think in archaeology, we're, uh, you know, in the last... 10, 20 years or so, that's been a feature in in the theoretical side of things as well for us, is thinking about the fact that the religious and the secular, Mm. if you want to call it that, were Mm. not at all separate in most societies, you know, whether hunter-gatherer or early farming societies, even metal-making societies, you know, that that's, that's the way of the world actually for most people. And that our, the Western, modern, supposedly way of life is actually very strange and yes. anomalous. Yes. Mm. I mean, the, the idea of, yes, in, in some cultures, perhaps like Christianity, you know, going to church on Sundays and, and then not. I mean, obviously that that's, mm. you know, a, a good Christian would say it permeates one's whole life. But I think for hunter-gatherers, I mean, you know, doing the research for Viper's Daughter, um, I went to Haida Gwaii and talked to the Haida people and even now, you know, that there's everything they do is imbued with their beliefs. Mm. And and traditionally, you know, I've done a lot of work. It hasn't come into Viper's Daughter yet, but not those books yet, but it will, I hope. You know, that the building of the canoe and all the different 
bits of gear that you put in your canoe, even the baler, you know, it might have a, a seal's head on it or the, the head of an orca, because that's very important in, in their culture. Um, everything mm. you, you use is is carved and has a meaning, you know, which mm. the, the spirituality is part of the use which I have to be careful, though, when I'm writing the books, because you know, I'd love to describe every bit of gear that Torak and Red have. But then, you know, it would be pages and pages before they get moving every morning. So yes, yeah, this, this is supposed to be an adventure story. So um, all the research boils down to just a few little details, preferably being used in the story, you know, not just add-ons. Oh, we we talked about Margaret Elphinstone's Gathering Night. I don't know if you've read it, but it's I um, set in, it, but I've heard in it, Mesolithic yeah. Scotland as mm. well. And it kind of takes place around the time of the tsunami that, mm. that flooded Doggerland. And she worked with the archaeologist Caroline Wickham-Jones to kind of build up her knowledge about the Mesolithic. Mm. And Caroline was really keen to get in stone tool making stuff but um but margaret made the point that that would have been so ordinary to the people who were in that yeah. time yeah. they would never explain it they would never describe it and she was writing it well it wasn't quite first person but it was it was a storytelling mm. type mm. of premise so yeah the you know we try those are the things that occupy archaeologists a lot is kind of yes. how did they mix their tools <laughs> but um it's really not that interesting um <laughs> well I, I funny you should mention that because i remember in spirit walker the second book i think it's the second book in spirit walker there is a scene when finn Kedin makes a microlith knife for, for oh, torak yes. and um it wasn't just because you know i wanted to get that in because i never do that that's death to storytelling but Yes, that's it's an example of where you know there was a point to that. You know, he was telling Torak something quite important, and in between, you saw Finkedin doing these little bits, which end up being the microlith knife. Mm. But you have to do that. You only do that. That's my rule. If it's important to the story, and then yeah. it enriches it. Then it can be actually quite interesting, and it, it makes an ordinary conversation that little bit more interesting and more Stone Age. But yeah. yeah, you've got to be really careful. It's got to be a point to it. And then, of course, he uses the knife and it's from Finkedin, who's the father figure. But yeah, you, you've got to be so careful. And a lot of my rewriting is sort of cutting that out. <laughs> yeah, I, I think during the course of doing this podcast, one of the things I've noticed is that the books, stories set in prehistory written by archaeologists are not as good as those <laughs> written by uh, author, by proper writers, you know, storytellers. That mm -hmm. is the craft. The storytelling is the craft. And if it's written by an archaeologist, there's just too much archaeology. So it's been an interesting journey to see that. Anyway. You may well be right. I don't think I can comment on that. But <laughs> no, <laughs> possibly comment. I can say it. It's fine. Okay, let's talk about the new book because we haven't really uh, we've we've skirted around it but i really enjoyed coming back to it my and back to the to the to the characters and seeing what they were doing and it was lovely like coming back to to friends that you'd mm. known from long ago and but obviously um, I'm more. I'm really interested in how you depict the Mesolithic, and I. What I've always thought about all of them, actually, is how you depict a very rich culture, even though there's sometimes struggles to survive, but they've got a, a really like as we've talked about a deep understanding of the natural world, but mm. also the the stories around it, with the things that they make, and the social relations as well between people between different clans. You have clans. Yes. 
named after animals, mm. but you also have uh, within each clan a different way of organizing families and organizing mm. what you do with children and how men and women relate to each other and the gender division of labor. Mm. <laughs> yeah. um, and I think that's, especially in this one, that comes out quite a lot with the Narwhal clan being quite yes. quite different to everyone else. So that's, uh, what made you decide to to write the clans that way and, and those kinds of social relations? Well, uh, with all of the, uh, it started small with Wolf Brother. I just thought, well, it'd be a great idea to, you know, name, have different clans because that's how they lived, we think, you know, and name them after different animals and plants rather like the clans of the Pacific Northwest. And then when I was planning Wolf Brother, I thought, well, let's just give them each clan a particular characteristic, uh, and mm. you know, make them make them different. It was it was reasonably cursory to begin with, and then it sort of became richer. And as each book went on, some of the clans became more distinct. For example, the Deep Forest clans are all a bit weird. You know, they are very, <laughs> yeah. very fundamentalist religious nutters. Some of them, um, you know, they really are. And I've had huge fun with them. <laughs> and whereas the, the Raven Clan are much more moderate and you know much more yes. easygoing, and and that's been hugely helpful. And then I've used different sort of more modern hunter gatherers as my models for some of the clans. For example, the White Flock, White Fox Clan, I should say, that Tarak and Ren meet again in in Viper's Daughter. Those mm. are you probably recognise quite a lot of the Inuit in them. Um, they're quite easygoing. They don't discipline their children traditionally. They just yes. hope that they come to their senses. And they're quite egalitarian about rules for women and men and that sort of thing. When it came to the narwhals, I wanted something really different. And just by chance, as I said, I went up to, well, I went to Siberia on my way to Wrangell Island. And I, I did stayed for a bit in Chukotka. Um, which is the far east of Siberia, and talk to some of the Chukchi people. And mm. they're lovely people, but traditionally their way of life, they were walrus hunters. And, you know, you, and, and so they were very strict and they had these incredibly strict upbringings of their children. The, the, the boys were brought up by their uncles and the girls were brought up by their aunts because the thinking was that parents would be too soft on them. Mm. Whereas uncles would, you know, wouldn't hesitate to, yeah, that them, really stood out for me. Which that, is that, really that tough. About... Yeah. Mm, yeah, they had such tough upbringings and, and, you know, the idea of boys being made to drag a walrus skull up and down a hill. Um, <laughs> I didn't make that up. <laughs> wow. I did not make that up. So the Chukchi gave me a lot of um, really good ideas for, for to, to make the character, make the, the clan distinct, you know, um, and, and also that the relationships between men and women are very far from being egalitarian. I'm not quite, I, I think that, yes, there was a little bit of that in the Chukchi. But the thing is, you know, I, I'm not saying that the Narwhal clan equals the Chukchi. I take bits from them and then I sort of exaggerate some of them. And that's what I do. So, so it's sort of very useful as a, as a means, as a guide to, uh, and plus the other thing is, you know, what I have learned is just when you think you've you've kind of got the hunter-gatherer cultures covered, you know, you, you start studying a new one and they're completely different. Their whole approach yeah. to life is different. Mm. And some lovely beliefs, uh, some Inuit believe that the moon is a thin disc of ice that's perpetually spinning. I love mm. that idea and it actually seems quite believable. Mm. But I put that into the mouth of a, a narwhal mage. So it's, sometimes it's the little touches and other times it's the big things like how do they organise their societies? Yes, I, I think that's, that is something that is difficult to get across sometimes because 
in archaeological theory, we also talk about some of these traditional communities and mm. what they can tell us about the archaeology that we're digging up. It is difficult to get across to people how much variety there is yes. in ways of organising your your lives and your your society. So I think that the through the books, I think that's really one of the huge strengths oh, through your you. books is 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 showing that life wasn't just the one way for everybody. Yes, yes. and of course they, that is different, and a lot of the time based on their geographical uh, location and what what kind of environment they're they're actually living in. Yes, your ge- the geography of your the, the, there's a good segue mm. there. Uh, the <laughs> geography of your books was originally the coast of Norway. Is that right? Or kind of Norway and the forests and so on. Well, it was it was Ish. northern Scandinavia. Northern um, Scandinavia. But although I, I I never made it sort of explicit in the afterward to to Wolf Brother, I have now for Viper's Daughter because so many people ask me. It was I, I changed the coastline and mountains and things to suit myself. But yes, in terms of question. the sort of latitude, I, I've sort of kept to sort of North Norway so that, you know, I can be relatively accurate about, you know, the kinds of plants and animals that you get there, the, the, the hours of daylight and things like that. So that's where it is. But then I have completely changed. Yes, I haven't I haven't been bound by modern topography. So you won't find Torax world if you look in the atlas. Uh, no, that. indeed. Although, yeah. of course, coastlines have changed. Indeed, a they lot. have. Um, yes, but yeah, I was interested in um, that. This for this one, you seemed quite um, influenced, as we've talked about, by the Eastern Asian or indeed North American side of the the Arctic, and uh, as you say, around the Bering Straits, kind of mm. northwest mm. Canada with the Haida Gwaii, yeah, and kind of used some of those uh, the ideas from those cultures over in. What is basically northern, northwestern? Well, it's not northwest when you're talking about the Arctic, but you know what I mean. In that kind of Scandinavian area, yeah. Yes, I mean, I, I, you know, I've all the way through Chronicles of Ancient Darkness, the Wolf Brother books. I've, I've taken ideas from all over the world. You know, I haven't, I haven't hesitated to borrow things from the San Bushman. You know, the Torex attitude to tracking is, is pretty San. Bits from the Ainu in Japan, you know, I, I, I'm quite unrepentant about that. I think, I think one of the things, I mean, actually, the Pacific Northwest will be particularly useful in in the the, the third book of, of the three that I'm writing. But mm. one of the things I did use was the whole idea of the the mask, the transformation mask that comes into. I went spoiler alert, you know, but oh yes, it's I love that towards the end, and I've always loved the way they use masks. I mean, masks come in in, in various aspects in other stories um, because they come into all sorts of hunter-gatherer cultures. But there was that was particularly useful, the idea that you can make one mask which then turns into another mask. And so you spiritually go from one creature to another because yes. it's quite, quite widespread in hunter-gatherer cultures that, that, you know, if you put on a mask, you become that thing or, yeah. or you're emulating that spirit, which I love. I love that idea. I've seen that, yeah, when you were describing the mask in the book, I was thinking very clearly of one that I know from the Pitt Rivers Museum mm. when I used to work there from the Haida Gwaii Islands where oh, it is, okay. a, uh, I think it's an, a raven or an eagle that turns into, and it, you can open the beak. Yes, yes. And see uh, another face in, in That's right. inside it. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And it's uh, quite, quite um, amazing engineering to actually, because it's got all these, oh, Tremendously. Oh, sorry. <laughs> it's got all of these um, little 
wires inside, hasn't it? Or strings. Oh, yes, to pull strings it and things. Stuff. Yes, and yeah. that's where you know I got I got I uh, did a lot of work on masks, but then you know again you, you come back to the story and you you know describing How wires much do and things. You, yeah. So you have to boil <laughs> it right down. But the essence of the idea, you know, the the idea that when you put a mask on, you become transformed into the thing that the mm. mask depicts. That is such a strong idea that that it's it's a shame not to use it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, as we've we've strayed into spoiler territory, I am desperate to ask about this because the you've got mammoths in the book, which are one of my favourite ever animals to ever um, live. Do you know what? I did not know that they survived um, up on Wrangell Island for oh. um, until only six thousand years ago. Or was it actually, even it was much more recent than that. It was about Gosh. three and a half thousand years ago. And I'm so glad you mentioned them because I don't know if you remember this, but I have a pretty strong recollection that when I was last on your podcast, we were talking, I think we were talking with Matt Ritchie and and you were all saying, oh, it was so good that, you know, you'd written about the Stone Age, but you hadn't included, you know, anachronistic things like, and I think you mentioned mammoths and everything. And I was thinking, oh my God, (laughs) she's going to roast me. Um, But what, what happened was I didn't know when I wrote the Wolf Brother books, I didn't know that mammoths had been around you know, after no. Torak. And then I went to that brilliant exhibition at the Natural History Museum. I think it was called Ice Age Giants. And they had the the, the wonderful frozen baby mammoth, Luba, from, which oh, borrowed yes. from Russia. And there it said that, you know, they had survived on Wrangell Island and I think also on the Pribilof Islands until about three and a half thousand years ago. Amazing. All the skeletons had been carbon dated. So I thought, oh, I missed a trick. But actually, I hadn't missed a trick. I, I'm, I'm really glad I didn't include mammoths in, in the first six Wolf Brother books. It wouldn't yeah. have felt right. They're no, so, not at They're all. so important and they're such a strange, you know, even, even in Torak's time, they are anachronistic in the sense that, you know, they, they have outlived their time in his world. Well, that's the feeling. Yeah. So I wanted, you know, a whole book really to do justice to them. So it, oh, it was yeah, perfect that, timing. Wonderful but they turn up. I'm, I'm glad, but I'm, I'm also relieved to hear that even you hadn't, you know, an archaeologist hadn't, hadn't sort of realised no. that they'd survived so long, but yeah. No, yeah. you see, I'd, I'd come across elephants and possible pygmy mammoths um, on, yes. in Mediterranean islands. I'd yes, come across that Crete. research. That's right. Yes, That's right. Crete and, and other ones, um, yeah. Uh, yeah. but not, I hadn't, I hadn't, heard about that which is really yeah. very remiss of me but mm-hmm. um <laughs> you can't know everything there's so much work going oh, on no, everywhere absolutely and one of the things that, that i find when i do do that wolf brother session at the chiltern open air museum and or or any other stone age workshop is that mammoths are the thing that come up but when i'm i'm usually doing the mesolithic and then you have to kind of let the kids down and say i'm sorry they just weren't around um and they don't like that <laughs> well you know and, and i think it's it's true that they, they wouldn't have been for most people um no, you know, there's no evidence no. there's i don't i think i'm right that there's no evidence of human habitation on wrangle i'm pretty sure i'm right about that right um so you know the, that's why the mammoths were there you know <laughs> because, yeah exactly you know, they'd probably been overhunted elsewhere yeah surviving to the same height as well because usually on uh, with island species there is this move towards miniaturization because yeah. that's, that's better for the animal but they well, don't seem to have done that on they don't seem to have done that on wrangle i mean that they were smaller i think they were a bit smaller i'm not sure about right. i think the pribilof ones were full size um mm. the, i think the ones on wrangle 
They were not technically dwarf. I know I had to sort of run this to ground because uh, mm-hmm. I wanted big mammoths, obviously. Um, yes, of course. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure if they were completely full size on Wrangell, but they weren't technically, you know, there was no dwarfism in, in, their, in, yeah, the, yeah. in them. Um, but uh, enough for a novelist's purposes, let's put it that way. And as I say, you know, three and a half <laughs> thousand years ago, whereas Torek is 6,000 years, so fine. <laughs> yeah, plenty, plenty yeah, of yeah. time there. That's fantastic. So as I say, I have my daughter with me yes. and um, I'm going to just let her ask you maybe a couple of questions. Sure. What was Torek's father's real name? I am yeah. never mm-hmm. going to tell you. <laughs> you are not the only one or the first one to have asked that question. I do know, but I haven't written it down. And you know why I'm not going to tell you? I sort of feel it would be an anticlimax now. And I, I like to leave a little bit of mystery there. So yes. um, I'm sorry to refuse, but you're in good company because a few people have asked that question. <laughs> <laughs> I think, yeah, well, that reminds me of one of the interesting aspects of the books is that people's names cannot be mentioned when they die. And um, that's something that has come up in a few different cultures as well, hasn't it? It has. And, you know, I wish I could remember which culture I got no, that I can't. from. <laughs> um, and, and this is what happens sometimes because in my early notes, I tended not to bother with attributing them. I just sort of took it. Whether it's Inuit or whether it's another one, I, don't, I think it's quite widespread. Um, yes, certainly yeah. for, often for a prescribed amount of time after the death, because the idea is that the spirit will still be around. And if you mention them, they'll hang around. And what you want yeah. them to do is go away. Go away, yeah. So, And I find that a very powerful idea. It is very powerful. Mm-hmm. And in a way, we've got. Well, that's why we can't know Torek's father's real name. That's right. Although it is well after the five winters, you know, which is in his culture. That's true. That's yeah. true. <laughs> so uh, one more question from Catherine. What does Torek look like? Ah, what does he look like? Well, he's uh, in Viper's Daughter. He's about 17. So he's a young man um, in hunter-gatherer terms. And he's quite, he's quite tall and quite thin because he's a hunter-gatherer. He moves around a lot and he's dark. He's got long, dark hair and which he ties back when he's hot or when he's hunting and he's got light gray eyes like a wolf and um sort of the same color skin as a native american so he's a little bit darker than wren who is is pale and freckled he, well, i can see him and he's also got his clan tattoos of course which are sort of two dotted lines um on each cheek with a a, a scar cutting across i think it's the left cheek which means is as important in the, in the story. And then of course, in later books, he has a tattoo, sort of a ring, a quartered circle um, on his forehead. So I think that's pretty much, yes. I don't want to give away why, but um, that's quite important. (laughs) That is. Yes. That's, um, I love how you've incorporated the latest Alkyo DNA research into that as well. (laughs) Ah, Which bit? All of the, the, well, in in the his appearance, um, oh, I see. Yes, I see what you mean. That a lot of uh, a, a lot of the DNA studies of uh, Mesolithic remains have shown that people remained dark skinned, dark haired, with yes. light eyes. Yes, I have yeah. to say, I was I was quite pleased because a lot of that research has come out after Since, know, was published. Yeah. So I, I kind know. of heaved a sigh of relief on that one. Actually, I thought, oh, yeah. Phew. Um yeah, that was that was quite fun. Yeah, there probably was more diversity than than is currently seen in because it's based on obviously only a few samples. But 
Yeah. I love yeah. Uh, that that was that was the way that you went with with the groups. Thank you very much for answering Catherine's questions. And you've, you're very, as I mentioned before, you're so proactive, engaging with your fans. The, we listen to your weekly live chat. Is it a weekly live chat that you do? It, it tends to be monthly, but oh, monthly, in the right. current situation, you know, um, when yes. people are all at home, um, we may well be doing them a little bit more, more often. <laughs> yes. And I think everybody really enjoyed it, especially because this Monday there was a little announcement, well, quite large announcement. I mean, obviously, first of all there are going to be two more books after viper's daughter and yes. viper's daughter is available on uh well, sort of, by the time this podcast comes out it'll be it'll be readily available yes. in the shops but um the ex- the really exciting news that your fans have been waiting for for oh 15 years yep. or more yeah can you tell us yes well i i have done a deal for not a film, but a television series with Kindle Entertainment and uh, Lionsgate. And it's, it's, I'm really, really pleased with it. It's going to be a very high-end television series. Uh, they've got a fabulous screenwriter. And, and what really attracted me to, to the production team is, is just how committed they are to making it an authentic Mesolithic world. So that, that's, that's really exciting. And, and it's uh, yeah. so exciting. <laughs> We are um, just, I can't wait. <laughs> I know it's still going to be a couple of years probably before it's on our TV screens, but um, yeah, so. that is so exciting. Um, it just deserves to be brought to life on the screen. Um, and I can uh, just, yeah, obviously it sounds like that's a great team that will do it justice. Yes. I think so. But yeah, we're very, very excited about that. Um, but also, of course, for the new books, because the books are always the best. Thank you. So Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> we are very much looking forward to continuing um, reading about Ren and Torak and Wolf, particularly. I think Wolf is, is Catherine's favourite. <laughs> She's mm. nodding at me and smiling. Excellent. Mine too, <laughs> Catherine. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> So thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Michelle. It's been brilliant to talk to you. We will hopefully get some comments from some of the listeners about uh, and they will go away and read the book and then be able to tell us what they think. So Lovely. I will send those on to you as well. Smashing. Them. Will do, please. Yeah. Thank you. It's been really brilliant to talk to you. I'm really glad we managed to do it. Well, thank you so much, Kim. It's it's been a great pleasure after after a few years to to be back. And uh, thanks so much. Thank you. Well, what a nice way to come back. Now, now I'm back. I wanted to rejig the show a bit. I'd like to have a bit more input from you, the listeners. At the end of each show, I'll let you know what we'll be reading or watching next, and then you can send me your questions and comments in advance. I want to put your voice into the beginning and the end of each show, and hey, maybe sometimes in the middle as well. Do get hold of Viper's Daughter if you haven't already. It can be read as a standalone book. The backstory is well explained, but it's it's I would say it's best if you do read the whole series of Chronicles of Ancient Darkness, if you can get hold of them all. So next month, next month, we're going to be talking Talizin with Erin Kavanagh. Get hold of the book of Talizin. It's, if you can get it, it's by Gwyneth Lewis and Rowan Williams. Yes, Rowan Williams, who was the former Archbishop of Canterbury. The book of Talizin is not exactly fiction, 
it's notionally by a poet called Taliesin in the 6th century AD, but they were written down later and many of the poems seem to have been added by anonymous scribes in later centuries. The original is in ancient Welsh and this is a translation. So it's in English so we can read it, but obviously probably loses something by translating it. So it's in ancient Welsh, but the oldest poems are about what is now Northern England. So it's full of contradictions. I'm quite interested now in the period, uh, just the sub-Roman and early Saxon period and how that all happened and what happened to the Britons and what did they think of themselves. And the Taliesin goes into that. We may also talk a little bit Mabinogion as well. So if you know that one or can find it, or fi even find it online, then it might be useful to go into both of those Welsh sources. It's um, not exactly prehistory, is it? But, you know, that's another one of the changes I, I'm making. I'm willing to read some historical fiction as well as prehistorical. And the process in kind of researching and indeed critiquing prehistorical and historical fiction is very similar. If I'm not an expert on the time period, which, you know, let's face it, who could be for any all the time periods and all the places, I'll try to get a guess who is. I'm going to draw the line, I think, probably at the post-medieval period, though. It's just, it's just too modern, you know? So from after today, let us know what you thought of this book, if you got hold of it, what you thought of the podcast, what you thought of uh, what Michelle said. Or if you're able to get hold of Taliesin or the Mabinogion, tell us about that as well. Um, what are your thoughts as you start to read that? Is it is it good? Is it is it bad? <laughs> is it difficult? Is it uh, to to actually get into? You know, then let us know. You can send us your comments by leaving them on the show page on archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash prehistories or to us on Twitter. The podcast handle is at prehistpod. Or, of course, you can always let us know at, at ArcPodNet. All of these places to contact us and all of the details about the book that we talked about today, Viper's Daughter by Michelle Paver and the Book of Taliesin by Gwyneth Lewis and Rowan Williams will be in the show notes. So take a look at those. Okay, so hopefully I will be in contact with some of you and we can include you in the podcast from now on. It's so good to be back. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.